the, the Boga Hunting Podcast. That's why I, I tried not to have camps on my bow. I don't have to deal with slippage or anything Shut like that. Up. You just put a new string on there, you're fine. What is Boga? But seriously, that's the dumbest thing I've ever re- seen. It go- I am all about just it. strap it to your pack. Really appreciate the fact that you're from Michigan and not Georgia. You don't want to be the next Mark Kenyon. No. I'm a shit show. <laughs> that's, that spot's taken. You can see how pathetic Jared's face is right now. <laughs> because that's how it looked. It was just like, is this good enough? Hello and welcome back to the Boga Hunting Podcast, everybody. This is a show for hunters of all skill levels looking for knowledge and experience. So follow along and let's strengthen your hunt. First light. First light camo. We uh, rock a lot of their gear a lot of the time. In fact, on a daily basis, I wear an article of First Light clothing. Great stuff. If you are a whitetail hunter, it's great stuff. If you hunt out west, we love it. Their wool is top of the line. Merino wool is the way to go. Firstlight.com. Another sponsor of this podcast is HuntWise. It's an app that's basically your one-stop shop when you want to do anything with hunting on your phone. It's got social media. It's got mapping software. It has a place to buy gear. It's, it's awesome. If you want to learn more, go to HuntWise.com. Handcrafted in a small northern Michigan town, Bivouac Bow Company is Michigan's premier traditional archery manufacturer. Their machines and sanders are all purpose-built, and they only use the highest quality materials available. To meet the bowyers in their truly one-of-a-kind bows, visit bivouacbowco.com. If you haven't heard yet, there's a lot of buzz around saddle hunting these days, and if you're anything like us, you want to use the best gear available. If you're thinking of trying your hand at saddle hunting this year, don't settle for some knockoff brand. Use the saddle company that has been doing it since 1961. Visit trophyline.com to find out more. One of the reasons we've been so successful hunting in the backcountry is because we've had quality products to work with, and we've decided to partner with Seek Outside for a couple of reasons. All their products are really made to improve the backcountry experience, whether that's backpacks, tents, stoves, or other backcountry gear. These guys really know how to make a quality product. So if you want to learn more, head over to SeekOutside.com. Last but not least, Stierka. Optics. Sturka Optics. Do you say Stirka? I say Stirka. Great binoculars, great rifle scopes. Yeah. I'm actually going to be rocking one on my uh, AR build that I have. A little red dot action. Mm-hmm. Great warranty made in the U.S. Uh, check them out. Stirkastrong.com. Since Jared's family is expecting a baby anytime and uh, can't join us tonight, I figured I'd uh, kick this one off by asking you a question, James. All right. <laughs> oh, boy. So since we've been talking all things uh, land management for the last three weeks, I'm wondering if I have convinced you yet to go throw down some cash on, like, a, say, 40-acre parcel near your house and uh, start building your own whitetail paradise. You mean besides the back three that I already have? Yeah, I mean, the back three is legit. Don't get me wrong. That's kind of my, uh, that's my honey hole. <laughs> no, I uh, I would love to, actually. It's just a different approach so far to hunting. You know, up until this point, it's more, you know, I've my mindset has been go out, find new places that you've never been, you know, explore, read sign, kind of make a plan. This is more like prepare. This is, this is a lot closer to farming. And that's not a knock or anything. It's just very different. It's management of land as opposed to going out and finding what's already existing out there. Um, which is, is exciting because you can, you, first of all, you know, you're going to, you have a good sense of what's coming around, what, what kind of uh, animals are, uh, you know, walking around. So all that to say is, uh, yeah, I've, I've definitely, uh, definitely open to it. I think Boga needs, you know, Mark, Mark Kenyon has the back 40. I think Boga needs, you know, the back 41. There you go. Right? <laughs> totally. So I, I figured that was going to be a response, but I thought, you know, maybe in case you needed a little bit more prodding, um, I brought someone on the show tonight that I, I think is going to have you fully convinced. We've got Jake Hendrickson on the line with us, and uh, he has a, is it a back 37? Is that what it is, Jake? Back 36. Yep, six. we've got 36 okay. acres, yep. Gave you an extra acre there. I know, I wish. Uh, See, you got to round he, up, man. I don't have the back three. It's the back 2.89. I just say the back that's three. That's true. So yeah, we can, we can call it man. the 40. There you go. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I ran into Jake over actually the last – few weeks doing this uh this podcast talking all things habitat land management and uh was just super impressed with what he was doing and thought we could do a little bit of a 
BS session roundtable. Yeah. All things uh, white-tailed deer habitat management. So welcome to the show, Jake. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. It's going to be fun to be here, that's for sure. Yeah. So you want to give us just a quick little rundown on who you are and what you're doing in the in the whitetail habitat world right now? Sure, sure. Yeah, to kind of give, I guess, the listeners an idea of uh, who I am and where I come from with from like a hunting background, I don't think it's going to be much different than a majority of people in Michigan. Uh, you know, started hunting when I was very young uh, with my dad and his uncle, uh, you know, maybe eight and 10 years old. And then he would take me out hunting on the, the farmer's property that we had permission to hunt on. And, you know, he would be back then we didn't have bow stands. You just go find a tree and climb it. So, you you know, you go (laughs) climb, climb the tree. Yep, exactly. And, you know, he'd be down in the bottom limbs and I'd be climbing up the tree and I, you know, you still can't, I don't know, don't know why we had, didn't see any deer back then, but (laughs) probably because you stuck. (laughs) Yeah. Probably had something to do with me climbing up and down the tree and not sitting still. Yeah. But how do you, how do you draw a bow back? How do you draw a bow? Up and just hanging off a limb. That can't you know, be I don't know. <laughs> like I said, we we didn't really see much, many deer back in the day. But yeah, so then we uh, eventually, my dad was able to, you know, through the connections with this farmer, find property right around the corner, bought 70 acres. And, you know, back in the day, you know, when we started hunting, I would say we weren't much different than, than most people in Michigan. You know, you, you see a deer with antlers and you know, we shot it, you know, so there wasn't really much uh, QDM practices back then or antler point restrictions or anything like that. We were pretty much just like everybody else. And then I would say sometime around like 2010 ish, we went to our very first quality deer management banquet. And there was something about going to that banquet where I don't know if it was the, like the enthusiasm of everybody there or, or what it was, but, and it probably had a lot to do with everyone showing us pictures of their older bucks on camera, but you know, you, you, it kind of, um, it made it, it showed us that, you know, this was possible, you know, before that it was like, you know, we would shoot a nice deer every once in a while, you know, once every five years, but for the most part, big bucks were something like that were out in Iowa or, right. you know, on, on Michigan out of doors. Like that, that wasn't a realistic thing for us to see. And but when, once we went to those QDM meetings, at that very first banquet, it kind of opened our eyes a little bit and we started changing what we did. And so I would say the first couple of things that we started doing was we just started holding ourselves accountable a little bit more. We would say, you know, we're going to enforce our own antler point restrictions and we're going to hunt a little bit different. And I would say just that alone, we, we were able to see results pretty quickly within the first couple of years. And, but then you always want to improve and you want to keep making your property better. And so then, you know, the, I kind of fell down the property management rabbit hole and it, you know, you, you go back then there w- really wasn't YouTube, like back in 2010 to 2013, where there the, was, it YouTube, was the dark it ages of the internet at that point. It was it was the dark ages. So like to, to find the the really good information on like whitetail management, property management, it was for in Michigan. It was like the Michigan Sportsman Forums. Yep. And so like that's where I would go for a lot of the information. Like you'd you'd notice a lot of things when you were hunting. You know, okay, the deer are bedding here. They're moving through the property this way, and they're they're heading out to the the food out there. And you, you want to try to enhance your property to kind of almost slow them down along the way. And so I would go to these Michigan forums to see what everyone else is doing. And so that's another thing I want to make sure that the, like the listeners know is like, I definitely don't want to be claiming to say that I invented any of this information or any of these tactics. It's, it's more, I'm, I'm trying to listen to what a lot of these experts are saying. I'm trying to apply it to my property and kind of tweak what they do. And so there are, there are definitely some guys that I would say that really had a big influence on how we set up our properties and how I'm setting up the property that I'm working on now. And I'm, I'm sure you guys are familiar with, with all of these guys. Um, as far as like when I, if ever I go to YouTube, some of the guys that come pop up constantly with what I'm trying to do are Dr. Grant Woods yep. from growing deer TV. You know, I really respect what he has to say. He's one of my favorites. Then, he, he's, he's cool. I like him. Yeah, I, I really like I really like him. And then uh, Jeff Sturgis, uh, he he puts out a lot of content, a lot of information, uh, and and he I think originally was from Michigan, now he's in Wisconsin. 
And then another, the, the two guys that, that I really, really like are from Michigan. One of them, his name is, is Jim Brocker. Uh, he, he does a, amazing work with a chainsaw. And I would say like, like for like bedding areas or travel corridors, things like that, he is just a, a genius when it comes to how to manipulate a property with a chainsaw. Um, and then the last guy is Jake Elinger. I think he, yeah, he's also out of Michigan and that guy knows more than anyone. And so when I would, when I'm trying to do something on the property, I, I have an idea on what I want to do, but I also try to like get everyone else's opinion on what they would do. And then I kind of try to make a, a really you know, logical decision based on, on what those guys have to say. So I would say like, yeah, those would be my, my biggest, I guess, influences for, for what I try to do. And yeah, it's, it's, we're definitely very lucky to have people like that out there to, to give us that information because they're just a wealth of knowledge. And I think we're um, super lucky as, you know, Michiganders to have so many of these habitat experts that are also local because exactly. this information is so specific to where you live. Deer behave differently. And I know in our past conversation, you said one of the most important things in your mind is knowing the deer that you're hunting. Just what what pressures are going to affect them most and how to manipulate those, protect them from those to, you know, ultimately be more successful in the end. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, one of the things that was a kind of a challenge for, for us was the, the fact that like, yeah, like you said, the deer in our area, they're highly pressured. So they, they, they react much differently than, you know, deer in a more like a neighborhood setting. Like I, I um, used to live in, in Rockford, Michigan with a park in my backyard. And back when it was legal, we would have a recreational viewing feeder in my backyard running the majority of the year. And you'd watch the deer and, you know, they would they would let you get about like 20 feet from these from the deer and, and they wouldn't move. But if you go up north and you just stop your car on the road and they're in the field, they're they're gone. That's you know, road they, hunters. That's the northern road. <laughs> that's true. The yeah, they they're like, they I know that, what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they see that pickup pull up. Like, those, what's going on. There's a bunch that's, of hillbillies in the back. That's James' turkey hunting yeah. tactic. Pop out. Yeah. See ya. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Now, I just quick question to go back. Um, sure. You you mentioned you went to this banquet. You know, everybody's mind was changed, and you guys agreed to uh, – to you know, up your game a little bit and uh, be more selective uh, on the age class of deer that you're taking out. Yep. What you know, we so personal experience. Uh, I've grown up. We we try to do that. Um, had a few relatives uh, that would say that they would do it, and then every year ended up shooting like a fork or you know a spike or whatever. Right. Now, yep. first of all, two two fold question. First of all, how'd you get how did you get everybody to buy in or right way or did, did they? Second question is. Was there repercussions for uh, for them? To, you know, is it like you know wearing right. a dress out for the rest of the year if you shoot a young something like <laughs> yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, you got to wear the pink camo out. Yeah, so muddy, muddy girl camo. Yep. I would say that not even to this like so. What I hunt with five different guys on on these three different properties, and I would say that still to this day, not everyone is buying in, and so hopefully that like you can kind of relate to that a little bit. Like yeah. you're not going to change everyone's mind, but they, they'd still follow the rules, I guess, if, if you want to call them rules. Uh, we kind of set goals as a, as a group. And we, I think the, the biggest thing is to not set too lofty of expectations and, and kind of re- understand where you're hunting. Like if you're going to try to shoot deer that you're going to normally see in Iowa here in Michigan, you know, that's okay, but you got to understand you might not shoot that deer every year. Like you might, it might be a couple of years before you guys take a deer off your property. I don't know. And so you, you got to set a realistic expectation for your area and your property and, and how much property you have. Uh, th- that'd be the easiest way to get more people to buy in. Like yeah. don't, don't say you got to wait for a six-year-old to walk by when, when you, all you're seeing, the oldest deer you're seeing is like a four and a half year old deer every once in a while and in majority of three and a half, right. you know, I don't know. So, but yeah, to answer your question, I would say still not everyone's buying in. So like the guys that I previously hunted with or still hunt with, but like back in the day, they were like the old school, old school hunters, like ground down. Right. And it's kind of hard to change that mindset overnight. And I, I think that a lot of them are, they, they do it because they, they want to uh, see the, the property improve and they, 
they want to shoot larger animals and older older age class of deer, but they they still in the back of their head they you can tell like it doesn't make sense. I don't know, but they but they still do it. And so far, yeah, we we've had we've had had a couple of whoopsies. Yeah, sure. <laughs> where, yeah. Where like someone said they shot one, and then you're going to track them, and then they're trying to bury it before you fu- before you get there. You know? Yeah, <laughs> but but you know it, it's just one of those things that. You, you know, you, you kind of can't forget why you started hunting in the first place. And it was just kind of, it was such a fun, it's, it's such a fun experience to get out in the woods and, and you don't want to ruin those relationships just because someone made a mistake or, right. or shot a, a deer that wasn't, you know, part of the plan. Now, if it, it be, I guess, if, I guess if they're like a repeat offender, uh, I don't know what you do in that instance, but yeah, you, you wouldn't want to burn. I don't think you want to burn bridges or end relationships that you've had for so long just because you're you're taking it more serious. I, I would say you don't want to forget why you started hunting in the first place. Yeah, yeah. and ev- everyone's own path and their history and, you know. Well, the history we is all... huge. That's, you know, like that older generation was grew up hunting during a time where the deer population was pretty sparse. Shooting a doe was kind of frowned upon because you're trying to rebuild a population. And so with right. antlers, you don't have such an impact, and they were encouraged to, to shoot an antler deer at that time. So it does make sense. Uh, but then changing right. that mindset after that's been set for, you know, 30, 40 years is, is going to take a little while. Yep. And I think it just – they need to see the success. Like they, you need to always show them that it's, it's going to work. And and thankfully, like one of the guys that kind of has been one of the biggest skeptics on our property, he actually shot the target buck last year. Mm-hmm. And so that's such a, a cool experience for him. And, and I, hopefully that, you know, that experience has kind of, you know, helped him move a little bit closer to, you know, this stuff actually works. Yeah, for sure. So what I, uh, one of the things that I think is uh, really impressive that you've done throughout your habitat improvement journey is the fact that you've been documenting all this stuff. Um, at least the majority of it, it seems like you're, yeah. you're making some attempt to document and, uh, you've got a, a really awesome, uh, Instagram page and uh, a YouTube channel as well with a lot of tutorial videos and that kind of stuff. What led you to that? And can you, I guess, just kind of tell everyone else sure. what those are all about and, uh, what you're trying to do with it? Yeah. So, uh, initially like I'm, I'm much like, like I think Mark, you said your property is, um, up North a little bit. I was having a hard time, like finding time to go back and forth to the property and make the all the improvements that I wanted on a consistent basis. Because like, yeah, you have a Saturday here or there that you can go up north and make the improvements, but it, it's it gets kind of like it's a it's a lot of work. And I, and I knew that if I, you know, had had more of this like closer to home, that I'd be able to do a lot more of what I wanted to do. And so I I kind of convince my wife to uh where it all starts. sell our yeah you know, gotta got convince the no. wife so i convinced my wife that you know it'd be really cool if we own property you know or had um our house on a piece of property and so she bought in and we there was a little bit of a process but we ended up finding a property that we both liked and then we you know put our house for sale closed on the property and then yeah like you said mark we're trying to document basically everything that we're doing from start to finish on this property and to, to kind of show people um, maybe what works and, and what does not work, you know, kind of show like our successes and our failures on, on how to turn a 36 acre parcel in high pressure Michigan into a, a property that, you know, you, you can shoot nice deer on. And I guess to like for like the, uh, so the Instagram account, the YouTube, just to try to help answer people's questions, kind of like when I was first starting into this and trying to, I had those questions and I, I reached out like, you know, you go to Google, you go to the mission forum, you go to YouTube and you're trying to find these answers. Um, I just kind of wanted to be maybe another resource for someone if, if they had a, a specific question or, you know, if they ran into a certain situation that, that hasn't been answered before. Um, and also I guess like the, the end goal would be to, once you do this to, to get more into like the property, you know, management, the hunting uh, habitat consulting uh, side of things and to kind of show people that, you know, just these concepts that we're implementing on our properties, that they do work. And it, it's kind of a, almost a little bit of a, a, a resume to, to show people that, 
that what we do works and we can kind of install it on your property and to, yeah, to kind of almost yeah, get a little bit of a street credit, if, if that yeah, makes sense. Building a portfolio sure. a little bit. Yeah, a little exactly. bit of a portfolio, a little bit of a resume. So what are those accounts? People can check them out. Um, yeah, if you, if you want to see any of the stuff that we do, our Instagram handle is whitetail underscore habitat underscore management. And the YouTube is, a, is a, under a different name. It's under Whitetail Evolution LLC. And we also have a website, whitetailevolutionllc.com. You've got some awesome uh, photography and video on there for sure. Your stuff <laughs> is super professional. Thank you. I, I have to give all the photography credit to my wife. She takes all the pictures. So, and, and also another thing, like we, we want to kind of um, incorporate our family a lot into this just because this is our property. And so we really try to like have my, like our son and like soon to be our daughter out there, you know, helping out with the, to almost like to pass the torch down, teach the younger generation um, how to do this kind of stuff and, and take care of the, take care of the environment, take care of the habitat to try to get back a little bit. Yeah. That's a cool thing um, to get them involved. Uh, what was the secret to getting your wife on board? What was the thing you said that really won her over? So she, she likes the outdoors as well. And we had always talked about eventually uh, getting property and then maybe building on it right. down the road. Like after kids are done with college and you know, we're in that stage of our life and, but then we also had an idea, like a thought process that, you know, we really want our kids to grow up with having maybe that in their backyard because, you know, kids nowadays, you don't see them outside as much. They're kind of, their faces are in their phones and we wanted our kids to grow up more outside. And that was one of the biggest selling points for me was, you know, being able to have this in your backyard, you know, you can get done with work and we can just go hang out back there and, just being able to have all that stuff right in your backyard. I think that was the biggest selling point for me. Seeing your son on his little uh, John Deere out there working on the food plots and uh, yeah, yeah, I need to get stuff. I need Some to get him a cultivator pack for that thing. There you go. Yeah, yeah really, put, really put him to work. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that's some cute stuff, man. You got, a, you got a good thing going there for sure. Okay, thank you very much. It's definitely fun. He loves it. What's your uh, what you uh, you know as you plan for twenty twenty? What's the big um... What's the big initiative? Like, what's your what's your big improvement for for twenty twenty, the, the year of COVID? So the year of COVID, yeah. Um, Trying, I guess, build off of last year. Mm -hmm. So, so when we had this property, there really wasn't much to it uh, when it comes to. There was one. I don't know if you guys can. Did Did you send uh, him the pictures of the property that we can kind of like? I, I literally just sent it to him. I should should have done it earlier. Uh, no. Kinda. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. I'm looking now. So it com completely if failed you, to do that, but I, I wish I, I I can I can't really show you the the uh, pictures without the all the designs on them. I guess. But basically, my property when I first got it was just like a big open field right in the middle of like the top section of it. So it's a, it's a 36 acre parcel. Yep. It's a, it's a long skinny rectangle that runs North to South. It's about 220 yards wide. And it's about 800 and some yards long. And on the top side, there's a little open field. And so the, the, the initial part of it last year was, okay, let's work on like food and access and let's take a stab at a, like a bedding area quick uh like near the food and then we did that and then this year we, we've been really focusing on trying to create a lot of bedding close to the food and then also create deer trails that basically kind of wrap around the entire property and basically kind of connect the back of the property to the front yeah uh, and, and also access to the back of the property uh, that was one thing that we like we did not have last year was good access towards the, the south end of the property. And so that's still something that I'm working on right now. I mean, I could very easily walk along the edge of the property and cut in back there, but I would much rather almost come in from the south side, like across the neighbor's field. And so I just need to contact him. And that, that would be the easiest way to get in yeah, there without spooking deer. Now, I see a, a thing that says hot box. Uh -oh. Are you guys just smoking <laughs> cigarettes in a box in there? Or, or what, what so, yeah, we might need to cut this one out. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, yeah, who, actually, who knows? Maybe you do need to cut it out. But um, 
So one of the guys that we hunt with, he uh, likes to smoke his medicinal marijuana. And this uh. is the guy that... Yeah. <laughs> and so this... And this so that's this, his blind. That's yeah. his blind. And he's one that... He, he's the guy that doesn't always buy into what we do. And so I put him as close to the house as possible. <laughs> so he can't, well, he won't get lost because he's he, going to be... He can't get lost. He's got his hot box. You know, everyone's happy. <laughs> yeah. I wish That's Jared great. was here. I'd be making fun of him right now. I don't know how, but I, I'd incorporate a, <laughs> something, making fun of Jared and hot boxing. Now that's, that's cool. I'm looking at the property here. Um, now your neighbors, you know, you've got fields to the West and to the East. ish. Yep. Are they, have they bought into this land management kind of deer QDM philosophy or how are they? So I would say, um, yes and no, and it depends on the neighbor. So the guys that border us on the southeast, so that the other woodlot, those guys do hunt, and they they say they target older deer. You know, that's about as much of the conversation as I've had with those guys. And yeah. I I send them pictures of the deer that we get on camera just to kind of I just try to be as honest as I can with my neighbors, like almost to say like, hey, I'm seeing this one, I'm letting him go. You know, maybe. So that, that can go one of two ways. That can be, oh, my gosh, look at that deer. <laughs> Thanks he, for the he, intel. <laughs> he, he let him go. Now I'm going to go in there and, yeah. and, and sit the property line and shoot him. Or they're going to say, you know what, Jake let that deer go. If we let him go, then he's going to be that much you know, older next year if, if everyone else kind of passes as well. So those, those guys say they've only shot older deer. And they, they sent me a couple of the pictures that they've – you know, the year they've harvested over the past couple of years and, and they are, you know, in probably like that three and a half age class. So I, you know, I, I tend to believe them. Now the other guys, um, not even, it's probably, I think this one guy, the, the, the guy who owns most of the agriculture property. Now, again, I don't know, this is kind of just like word of mouth conversation. Yeah. Um, but when I, when I talked to the neighbor, he said that the, the farmer, you know, he gets the damage permit tags in one year, like he went out and shot 30 does. So who, so those, so I would say that wow. guy does not necessarily buy in to like necessarily land. Like if you, if you need to shoot that many, I guess, shoot that many, but with uh Barry County, if you look at like the deer density for Barry County, it's on the, I think it's like 15 deer per square mile. So, I mean, it's, it's on the lower side of average. So it, to say that you need to shoot 30 deer in a season seems a bit probably excessive. probably doesn't need to happen. Yeah. So that, that's definitely going to be a challenge, but at the same time, like deer will under, I feel like that they'll understand that that's coming at them. And if you can give them a, a place to hide out during the day, then you can, you can actually control a lot of you know who survives and who doesn't. Now right. there's going to be times where, where those deer will leave and, and wander out into that bean field a little too soon. And then they'll, you know, get taken out. But if you can give them uh, somewhere else to go, then, you know, then they, they have a, a higher chance of making it to the next year. And that's actually why I set the property up the way I did. Um, I was just so about I, to say, is, is alleviating pressure kind of number one on your punch list then when it comes yeah, to so, your property? So when it, when, it, when it comes to this property and how we hunt the other properties, like I would say that the number one thing we try to do is eliminate stress. And that, you know, that's hunting stress, that's deer social stress. Um, and from the hunting aspect of it, you know, you want to try to make sure that your deer survive, especially your right. buck survives the next year. And so you want to be the one that controls, you know, when, when you take them out. And that's why I set the property up kind of the way I did. If you look at, so for the, the listener, it's kind of like a north and south, again, like a, a rectangle that runs north and south. And there are two areas that are right next to my property that are planted. And then also across the road on the other side that are planted um, with agriculture. And that's typically where these deer want to be hanging out at night. And so what I try to do is I try to put as much food on my property away. Like, so if my property is 800 yards long, I tried to put as much food on my property on the opposite side of that neighbor. Right. So that, those deer, when they go to one of the fields at night, they choose, they will have a higher probability, I guess, of choosing to go north instead of south. Now, that doesn't mean that they're never going to go south, but it just means that there's a higher chance, in, in my mind, that those deer are going to go north 
and end up in a different field where they don't have as a high uh, as high of a chance of of getting shot by someone who has damage permits and wants to shoot you know who many who knows how many deer per season yeah so and so i, I kind of have the property set up where like most of my food is on the north end and they're kind of in longer food plot trails to small plots and they kind of all lead to like a destination field that's actually my neighbor's property so that i don't have any destination type food source on my property but i have more like the micro plots the staging plots poor man plots that would kind of filter into a destination plot and then my bedding for like doe bedding is kind of mixed in along with that food and also i need to put more in but in between kind of where I where I know the bucks are bedding but then then I have more of like satellite buck beds and satellite buck bedding areas more towards the south like middle of my property towards the south end yeah so it, and that makes it um, more predictable to hunt too because you can kind of hunt the top area more in the afternoon like for the night hunt if you want to go in in the afternoon because you know those deer are going to kind of be filtering out of those bedding areas and moving towards that destination food source and if you want to try to go in in the morning then you can kind of hunt the the backside of the those buck beds depending right. on which wind direction there is or you can kind of go towards like you can still go towards the food source but maybe you go towards the backside or the south side of those food sources and you try to catch those bucks sneaking back from the fields going maybe through your food plot through the doe bedding areas back to their beds so, so how have you navigated trying to separate your doe bedding from your buck bedding that's one thing that being new to this like I can pretty, you know, decently identify a buck bed and what's doe bedding, but when laying on the land and trying to, um, you know, influence uh, where they're bedding, how have you separated those two in your mind? Are you just kind of sweeping in the pot in the existing areas they already are, or are you actually trying to create beds specific to does or bucks? So a little bit of both uh, on when you said, like, are they bedding, like bedding where they normally are anyway? So before I bought this property, like I said, there was already one existing field in the middle. And that was kind of a mix between like goldenrod and clover and things like that. So the deer were feeding in there and they were, they were actually bedding right off to the side of it. So there was doe beds right off to the side of it. And so that I knew that they're, the does were bedding really close to food. And, and a lot of the stuff that you read, you know, from some of those other habitat managers that I mentioned previously, like a lot of those guys will talk about how the does are going to bed close to food. Right. And the, the further away from the food and from the does, then those bucks are going to bed because those bucks, they don't tolerate as much stress as those does do. And so they want to be further away. And so if you can try to create doe beds or doe bedding areas closer to the food sources, you, you just have a higher probability that that's where those does are going to be. It, no, it, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that just because you make a bedding area next to food, that there's guaranteed going to be does there. It's just that's where they want to be anyways. And so if you give them a place, there's a high chance that that's what they're going to be. If that, if that makes sense. And then same thing with the bucks, if you can kind of put the does close to the food and then you kind of back off, you know, a hundred yards and in and, and this property, it, it's, it, it lines up perfect. I've got um, a lot of Hills and, and fingers that kind of are kind of, if you look at some of the, the names of those ladders, like I got like high risk, double ladder, high risk, cruising ladder, on the bottom or the south end of my property like those are on the on points and fingers of ridges and there's actually um we've, we've cut like openings in the in the canopy and then we're getting some pretty good undergrowth there and so that and that's where the bucks want to be anyways and and so that, that's kind of how we separate them i guess a little bit if, if hopefully that answers your question basically we try to put the does as close to food as possible yeah and then we, we went back you know, maybe about a hundred yards and we kind of went over top of a hill and kind of on like a, right where you read that, you know, bucks want to be anyways, or, or if you go scout and you find buck beds where they want to be anyways, like on the military crest of a hill with like, for like a west wind, like the hills to their back, the wind's coming over top of their back and they can kind of see down the hill. And so that's kind of where we made the buck beds. And then we have a couple different hills there so we can kind of make different buck beds for different winds. And I, I didn't have cameras there, so I, I don't know if they're using them for different winds or if they just use them, you know, for all different winds. But I, we definitely know they're using them just based on the sign there, you know, based on like the rubs and the pellets and the tracks. Yep. So sure. we, we do we do know that they're they're using those. I, I have no, I don't know how often, I guess, but I do know that they're using them. 
Uh, you're running cameras. You're you're you're, um, you're managing it pretty closely. How well do you know the deer population on your property? I would say um, during the season, it, it's 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 pretty amazing. So right now on the property, there might be a couple doe families back there, and mm-hmm. I think there there is a there is a bachelor group of bucks that's kind of hanging out um, on the southern end of my property. But we're back there. I would say every single day. So obviously not right now, but on a, on a normal day, we're back there, whether it's, we're just hanging out, my son's driving his tractor or we're doing habitat work. Yep. And so I would say on a, on a, a normal day from January 1st, you know, all the way until August, there's probably not that many deer back there. Um, and like, but if I go for a walk at night, like after we, I put my son to bed and I'll go for a walk, like I'll, I'll kick out some deer, but so they know when we're there and when we're not, but I would say that there, there's probably you know, two doe families back there, we, we probably have, I don't know, 10 to 12 deer that are using it right now. But during the season, like last year, when like we, we stopped going on the property um, around Labor Day. Yep. And then I, and I went out there maybe in mid-September one time just to throw a bunch more seed down. And then I got right out. But during the season, from based on the cameras, yeah, they were, they were using it like crazy. So Interesting. Yep. Do you name your bucks? I do not name my bucks. Maybe I should. Um, I, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I, I haven't really ever named a buck. Uh, up north, like whenever we see the biggest buck on our property every year has the same name. His name is Big Mo. So <laughs> I don't know why. That, that's just the name that, that the guys that I hunt with, they, they, they named the buck Big Mo a long time ago. And so that's just the name that the target buck every year gets is Big Mo. Big Mo, Little Larry. Yep. Little Larry, no, really, Little Larry. <laughs> now, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, it's 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 a different it's a it's a different approach, um, you know, you, to to manage your own herd, and that's why I ask, you know, um, because you end up kind of getting to know the deer a little bit. Uh, you get, yeah, absolutely. You, you get a yeah. sense of where they go. You know how they work, how they think. Um, how long did it take to figure that out? To to, to understand like a certain particular deer. Just yeah, or or, ge- or generally the deer, how the deer go on your on your property, how that works. I would say it, you know, it doesn't take long um, when you can kind of identify where you know the deer want to be for like their destination food source. Mm-hmm. It doesn't take long to to figure out kind of you know then you can kind of just backtrack it from there. That that would be the the best if you want to actually go on the ground and scout. You know the best time for me, my favorite time would be January first. You know right after the season is done. Because then what I can do is I can go out to my food plots and maybe wait for one or two things. If it has, if it's snowed recently, wait maybe a couple of days. So like you can get all those tracks in the snow yeah. and then, and then go in and, and scout. Then you can kind of backtrack those deer all the way to like where they're bedding, what they like to bed in. And then you can also kind of evaluate your hinge cuts too. Like that's a great way. Like, okay, are they, how are they relating to my hinge cuts? Are they actually using my hinge cuts? They're using this one. They're not using that one. Um, what trails are they using? Because you, you can you can just follow them right back to their beds. Same right. thing with, kind of with with the bucks. Um, but yeah, I would say it does not take very long to to figure it out. And with with the deer, like they're going to use a lot of different trails. But if you can kind of give them reasons to go down certain trails over another, they're going to take them. So deer are pretty lazy yeah and if, and if they're conserving energy conserving energy and right. and if, if there's like a, a thick way to go but you kind of make a nice easier path you know right past your stand then they're going to take that i would say nine times out of ten right and if you put like a couple mock scrapes along the way then that just kind of gives them more more of an incentive to go that way and, and you're really big on on steering the deer. I mean, correct? Yeah, I, I would say that's one of one of the my favorite things to do is is like actually create these trails and kind of influence the influence where they go. So there was there's two like I'm, I'm probably not a very good hunting neighbor because um, there was <laughs> there's there's two trails that go right off my property and these are like really heavy trails and they go right past a, a stand and well me being selfish, I they say, well, I don't like that. So I actually hinge cut trees to block that trail 
to try to steer them away from that way. And I know like the deer, if they want to go over there, they're going to find it, but at least they're not going to take that trail. Right. You know, they're going to, they're going to find a different one. And, and I know that like, even for my property, like I, I want to have deer come on my property. So it's not like I want to block the entire, right. Um, the entire uh, property line, but I want to choose where they come on and come off. And so I can, you can kind of steer the deer a little bit with, with these deer trails or deer travel corridors, steering tunnels, whatever you want to call them. Uh, and, and yeah, you can put it right past the stand. And so how we kind of set them up is we kind of, our property runs north and south in that big rectangle. And so we kind of try to have the deer trails, the big main ones that we want those deer to travel down kind of like in a big loop. So if a deer starts at the bottom, they can kind of take that loop up and, you know, move it towards those food plots or, or if they're heading back and they're going to take it South or, or, you know, this kind of gets more into hunting strip, like how you hunt them. But like if a buck is coming in, you know, he, he might kind of come in with the wind at his face back to his bed. So there's different tree stands for that kind of stuff. But, um, one thing I thought was interesting that you mentioned the other day, um, was the satellite trails, how often you'll oh, create, right. create a trail that you know is specific to doe who are simply trying to get from bed to food with the uh, you know path of least resistance, but then alongside of it, you're kind of carving out this smaller trail um, on the, you know, say, predominantly downwind side. The buck that, trail. The, the big boy is going to cruise yep. just yep. to scent check that other trail and that's where your stand locations are actually strategically placed to intercept that secondary trail. Right. Yeah. So a lot of times when you make these deer trails, like if, if you're, there's a different, a couple different types to make, like there's food plot trails and then there's like um, more like an ATV type trail, like that you can make, like kind of like what you'd um, walk in a state park. Yep. You can make something like that. But then there's also just like the normal deer trails that you'd see, like, um, maybe on public land, like going in and out of like a marsh, it just, this looks like a, like a cow path going in and out. Like that's like, maybe like two feet wide. But so I would say most of the deer trails that we make are the, the big ones, like the, like I can drive my, like a riding lawnmower down it. And the, those are the ones that like the does are going to take from bedding to food. And some of those are planted then in like a perennial, um, heavy, like a browse tolerant mix, whether it's chicory or clover or something like that just to kind of steer the deer you know towards our um our food plots but then just off of that on the downwind side we create like the and sometimes we don't even have to create them so a lot of times they just They'll pop up them. on their own yeah. they, they, they make them on their own and and we just kind of keep them clear you know if, if a tree falls down you, you get rid of the tree or you, you clear the brush along the way but the, yeah, like those little satellite trails that kind of pop up on the downwind side of the, the main doe trail or like the food plot trail. And then that's where you hang your stand on the downwind side of the satellite trail. So now the, the buck isn't always going to take the satellite trail. Sometimes if he's on a doe, he'll, he'll take her trail like if he's right on her. But if, he, if he's out cruising and, he, and he's just trying to be as efficient as possible, he's going to you know loop around the downwind side of the bedding area. He's going to be on the downwind side of that food plot trail. And, and that's where my cameras are too. My cameras aren't normally on like the big trail. My cameras are kind of on that satellite trail. Right. And I'll hang a scrape there too. And just to kind of get, hopefully get him to stop for a second. But sometimes during the rut, like he doesn't even stop. He just keeps going. He, he just kind of keeps bouncing through and he's so keyed in. He's not. Yeah. yeah. No. He's got one thing on his mind and like he'll be going, he'll be going, he'll stop for a second, check something out and then just keeps going. That reminds me of Jared in high school. Like, just <laughs> poor Jared can't be here to defend himself. Can't, yeah, can't defend himself. See, shouldn't have had a baby, Jared. No, that's um, that's really cool. Um, how long have you been doing this on this land? So, we bought this land during the hunting season of 2018, okay. and so it, I think it was like early November of 2018 we closed. And so we didn't do any hunting really on it in 2018. We didn't, we didn't have any stands back there. And there was, you know, I, I, there was kind of two thought processes. It was one, do I go back there and hunt? And because there was like one blind back there that I knew was there, it was a box blind that the previous owner had left. And so like, do I go back there and hunt and, you know, risks 
spooking out this property or do I just let it sit there, kind of give the deer somewhere to be safe and try to advance all these deer, you know, one more year, get them one more year older. And so that's kind of what I deferred to. And Your I, patience, I said, no, is, that's impressive, man. I would have jumped right in. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I think I'm, I'm fortunate to have, you know, two other properties to, to go to. And so this was kind of almost a bonus at the mm-hmm. time. And so I, I, I went up to those other properties to, to hunt, but and now, now th- this year is going to be an, ex- an exciting one because last year was like we put in some, we put in a, some improvements. We kind of watched the deer, see how the deer used the property, and then we put in a lot, you know, more improvements now yeah. based on what they want to do. And and so this year is going to be a really fun season to hunt because we 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 did hunt last year, 2019, didn't shoot anything on this property. We we let everything go, and there was a couple times where like you, you have. You know, we hunted up north, and there was a couple of times where I was either working or up north when a deer we would have shot walked right by one of our stands. So yeah. it, it's you know it's timing; you can't be in two places at once. But hopefully, yeah. it all comes to fruition for you this year. I know it's it's definitely exciting, and, and having it in your backyard makes it so much easier just to kind of get out there and then on the right day it's not on the like, right this day is my day off and i've got to go it's yep i'm calling so that, in so, to work this morning because the stars are aligning and this is going to happen today exactly <laughs> yep <laughs> yep do you have That's your awesome. do you have your opening morning uh spot picked out yet it's almost <laughs> june really yeah opening morning spot so that that's tough um it, it so if you look at the picture of the property like the the pole barn ladder stand. Yeah. If I was going to sit in like an opening day spot, that might be it. Just because I know most likely on opening day, I'm probably not going to shoot the deer that I want to shoot. So I don't really want to push too far into my property too soon in the season. Right. If if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, so absolutely. I don't. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. so if if I even hunt on opening day on this property, it would probably be somewhere like on the 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 fringe. Like I, I don't want to push in too far especially into like those bedding area stands where I'm probably not going to even like I I would never be able to beat those deer back to the bedding areas in the morning. Uh, so yeah, I, I probably wouldn't um, hunt anywhere too good in, until, you know, maybe the first cold front after like October 24 or something like that. But, but then, yeah, then I would probably, depending on the wind direction, I, I really want to hunt down on the, like one of those, uh, like that, that water hole double ladder. I really love that stand. Like you're, you're catching the deer coming out of the bedding, heading from, uh, heading from bedding, hitting a water hole and then, you know, going into the food, into that food plot and then filtering through into the, the neighbor's field. But so that, that's one of my favorite stands. It's a sweet property for sure. Especially for a sub 40 acre parcel in uh Southwestern Michigan. It's a, it lines up nicely with everything else that's going on around it. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that I really liked about this property initially, like when I first like saw it on the listing was, and this is something that like, I think if a, a lot of guys look like, when you're setting up a property for the first time, it's something to really consider is when I look at the surrounding properties. So if I just go to Google earth, put in my address, put, go into Google earth and I zoom out and I look at like the surrounding 1200 acres, there's not a lot of cover. It's mainly open. Yeah, it's, it's, yep. ma- it, it's mainly tillable, mainly farmland. And so what that tells me as a hunter and as, as like a land manager, that the deer around here don't have a lot of cover. So if that means that like out of the surrounding 1200 acres, I think that there's maybe, you know, 200 some acre, 260 some acres of, of cover. And I have 20% of it. So that means that if a deer wants to hang out somewhere during the day, safely. you know, they're not going to be, yeah, safely. They're not going to be out in that, in that, uh, alfalfa field, you know, they're going to be most likely somewhere in, in the cover. And so what I need to do over the next, you know, however many years is really focus on high quality cover to, to try to hold as many deer as I can on that property. Yeah. So I, I got to give them what they, what they don't really have on the property. Like if I try to just make food plot after food plot after food plot, you know, I, I don't think I'd be doing them as, um, I would, I wouldn't be helping them out as much because there's so much food around me right now. Yeah. Right. It's hard and to compete with an 88. It's hard to, hard you're to not adding anything that. they don't already have. 
Exactly. So that's kind of what you need to look at when you look at your property is what does like the area have and what can you provide for them that they don't have? And so for me, that's cover. And that's a, and it's a huge advantage when, when you can recognize that and, and, and install it on your property. And so that, that's definitely one of the things that we need to work on over the next, you know, however many years is adding, you know, more cover, more high quality cover. So I think to uh, wrap this thing up today, we should do a real quick kind of rapid fire uh, successes and failures. Mm. Okay. How's, how's that sound? That sounds good to me. I, I think I, I wrote down a few, <laughs> a few failures. Um, I think that's mm-hmm. what people care about more about is failures. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Abs- absolutely. I'm sure they'll, they'll appreciate that so we uh, all can feel equally stupid together because I know I've, I've made a few. Um, but how about we just do this? I'll, I'll throw out kind of a subtopic of habitat management and then you can give me either a success, a failure, tip, trick, whatever, whatever comes to mind. So Sure, sure. Food, food plotting. Okay, so food plotting. Um, I, I have a few failures. Let's go a few failures. Um, when we first started food plotting, I just, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to rake the leaves off this plate, like the spot in the woods. This is a good spot for a food plot. I'm going to throw my seeds down and I'm gonna have a beautiful food plot, just like you see on, on, you know, Michigan outdoors. And so I, I cleared the, I cleared the leaves off. I, I raked it. I loosened up the dirt. I put the seeds down, packed them down. It started to grow. And then as soon as it started to grow, all the leaves on the, on the large canopy trees above it filled in and choked out my food plot. So, I mean, it's, it's so stupid, but like, I right. should have known that. Like, cut, you, you have to have sunlight for your food plot to work. I mean, it's a no-brainer, but that was one of my uh, early failures with food plots. And another thing with food plots that, you know, you almost don't know until you do it. And that's like, you got to make sure it's like fully screened. So even last year on this property that we're looking at, if you look at like the, it's called the log cabin groundhouse and in my access trail along the the, um, east side of the property. So I was taking that in one morning and I got to a certain point where I did not think that like in the summer, I, I was completely screened off, but during the season, all the leaves fall off those, the dogwood bushes and you can see straight into the food plot. So right. I, I turned the corner and I could see 10 deer in that food plot and they're staring right at me. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Like I waited for three weeks to go into this stand <laughs> and I just blew up my property before I even got there. So, I mean that, that, so the mistake is you need to make sure it's screened. So that was one of the first things I did um, was make sure that I, I corrected that issue and made my access trail, you know, a little bit different. And I, I made sure it was screened appropriately from that, from that right. access point. How and, about, and, oh, go ahead. Oh, oh no. I was going to say another thing with food plots is, is um, the same thing with screening on the other side, we had a, a neighbor who would um, be driving his ATV up and down the property line during the season. And if deer are in that food plot, even though that ATV is 150 yards away, you know, they don't like that and they're going to kind of run back into the woods and they'll slowly filter back in, but you know, you don't know if they're going to, and if that's a, you know, a three or four year old deer out there, the buck, he might not come back. So one of the things, another things we did is we made sure we fixed our property line screening. And these are just things that you won't know that you need to address until you actually, you know, hunt the property for the first time and, you need to, okay, this is not screened appropriately. We need to, we need to screen it. So there's always going to be things on your property that, you know, you're going to see it when it happens and you need to learn, you need to address it. It's never going to go perfect the first time. Yeah. So speaking of screening, let's go with uh, bedding areas, hinge cutting, um, manipulating travel corridors, that kind of stuff. Any uh, successes or failures you've had there that, are worth sharing. Yeah. So the, um, I would say some of the, like the biggest successes we've had it is with those travel corridors and just the, the ability to kind of steer deer and kind of cut off routes that you don't want them to take whether it's, um, you know, like a trail that's going to go past your neighbor's stand. You can kind of cut that off and choose where that you want them to come in or, you know, taking a trail and kind of, steering it right past your bow stand and so i think th- those are probably the, the biggest successes we've had as far as like um 
deer deer paths it is creating a nice easy trail for them from point a to point b and you know whether that's bedding to food or food to destination food or bedding in between bedding you're giving them like a really easy path to to walk and as long as you kind of keep it clear that they'll they'll definitely take it yeah um failures with uh bedding areas i would say so i i don't know how true this is but I have better success with hinge cutting when the temperature is a little bit warmer. So like if it's like a February day and it's 10 degrees and I'm going out there to try to hinge cut, I would say that I have more failures with my hinges than if it was like maybe 36 degrees. I don't have, I, I, Maybe has good some, observation, you know, and yeah, a tree I'm you, sure is more brittle. I mean, you climb into a tree in cold weather, it just, you can feel the branches are different when they're, you know, yeah. below freezing. So, so, so that's one thing that I, I've noticed and you know, it, it could be user error. So I don't want to chalk it up to the fact that it's the temperature. It could right. very well be user error. Um, but that's just one thing that I've noticed. I have better success when it's a little bit warmer. Maybe, like you said, maybe the tree is a little bit more flexible and, Another thing you got to watch out for when you're hinge cutting is if that tree, like the last tree that you're cutting down, like if, if you're cutting down like a big maple or not a big maple, but like a, like a larger one for hinge cutting, like eight inches to 10 inches and it starts to fall. Like if it's the last tree, there's not going to be a whole lot to slow that tree down on the way down. So right. it's going to hit yeah. a lot harder. And so the, the, the chance that that tree is going to snap off is higher and also, because it's coming down so hard, if you're putting it into other hinge cuts, you have a high probability that that, that tree could actually your, and, yeah. break your other hinge cut. So right. uh, you, you kind of evaluate whether or not that last tree or like some of the last couple of trees, if you, if you can't get them to fall slow, then it's like, is it even worth taking that tree down? How much sunlight is that going to block? Right. You just got to kind of evaluate that, you know. In every bedding area or every hinge cut situation is going to be a little different. So you just kind of, you know, kind of look at it and say, is this tree worth taking down in that direction? Or, you know, would you be better off traditionally felling it, you know, in a safe direction where it's not going to hit anything? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, I, you know, I know we're, we're wrapping up, but I do have a question for you. Shoot. You hunt this, this property is very managed, right? Do you get bored? Do you get bored? Actually, no, um, there's never, there's always something to do. That's right. the, that's the, the, the fun part about it is there's always like a, a new trail to, to kind of groom. Like you, like there's going to always be trees to take down, like, mm-hmm. or, or, you know, uh, like the, the bedding areas in particular, like if, uh, like they can get almost too thick sometimes. And so you got to yeah. kind of come back in there and kind of, um, open them up a little bit more or, if um, like right before the season, what I what I did last year too is I, I had to make sure that I walked all my trails like into August to make sure that they were clear. And right. a couple of them um, had trees that were falling down. Like I've got a lot of ash trees that were killed by the ash borer. Yep. So anytime that there's a big thunderstorm or big windstorm, like you can see around my property, it's it's very open. So there's not a lot of um, trees slowing down this wind. And so when it hits my property, they, it knocks over all the dead ash trees. And so I got to go in there and I got to clear, clear out, out yep. clear out all those dead ash trees. Bring a little and order so, to the chaos out there. <laughs> yep. Yep. And it, it, it gives you something to do. We burn wood in here so that it doesn't, it's, it's okay, but, um, it, it definitely, uh, it keeps you busy. That's for sure. Yeah. I think that is the cool thing about habitat management is that, you know, you ask, is it, are you bored by this? That's, or do you get bored by this at some point? It's so uh, becomes you know an all season endeavor. Right. Where to me before I got into that started uh, having into the habitat world, it was like the hunting property that my family owned was a, a three month property. You know, right. you'd, right. you'd hang, hang some hand stands, you'd hunt it, and uh, you know maybe make it up for a shed hunt or a little postseason walk or something like that to right. scout. But it it pretty much sat dormant, other than maybe you know, mowing some access paths or that kind of thing. But then yeah. once you, once you open up this can of worms, it's like all of a sudden, I mean, for me, it's like every month I have my project list of things I want to take on. Yep. And, right. And I do think when ultimately you strike success, that culmination of all that work that you've put into over the subsequent years, um, it just makes it all Comes that all much more rewarding. 
Yeah. Yeah. It, it's so fun when you like you plant the food and, and you just you hang the camera and you watch those deer. They, they come in, they hit your water hole and they go, they're going out there. They're, they're eating on your food plot. It, it's fun when the plan comes together. Yeah. You know? That's cool. Well, Hey, we're, we're coming up on time here. Um, you know, I know we talked about it once, but where can people find you, uh, find information uh, and kind of see what you're up to? Yeah, so if people want to, uh, I guess, check us out on Instagram, our handle is whitetail underscore management uh, or, you know, whitetail habitat management uh, with underscores in between. And then YouTube, uh, our channel is whitetail evolution LLC. And we also have a website, whitetail evolution LLC.com. Nice. Well, hey, thanks awesome, for, for joining us, man. It was uh, just awesome. To, to no, this was there. a lot of fun. Yeah, you, you guys got to come out to the property sometime just to check it out if you want. Yeah, you're in Barrie, you said? I'm, I'm not too far away. I'm right in by Caledonia. So. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we're in Hastings. Nice. Sounds like a good date. I think it's a yep. date. I'll bring <laughs> the wine. Know. I'll bring the wine coolers. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. All right, awesome, man. Guys. Well, thanks again, Jake. Yeah, appreciate it, guys. We'll Take it easy. Soon. See ya. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Boga Hunting Podcast. If you guys like what you hear and want to follow along on what we're currently up to, hit that subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening on and follow us on Instagram at Boga Hunting.